the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I have to tell you, every uh, every uh, Friday that I wake up knowing I'm going to have Pete Peterson on this show is a day I look forward to getting out of bed and getting to the show. Uh, Pete Peterson is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. You can follow him on Twitter, at Pete, the number four, C-A, at Pete, four, C-A. Dean Peterson, how are you, sir? Great to be with you, Seth. Uh, doing well here. Campus is about ready to close for uh, the Christmas and holiday break, and so, uh, but a, a great way to end 2021 here academically here uh, with you. It's a great way to end that sentence. I was getting, you know, a lot of people don't end the sentences that way when they say campus is getting ready to close, dot, 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 ellipses. You know, it's not usually because of the word Christmas these days, Pete. That's a really good response. I liked how you got, uh, how that end, sentence ended. I like more the, for the fact that uh, that you're calling it Christmas. I, w- I was actually mentioning on the air earlier, I don't know if this has um, affected you or not, or if you know what I'm talking about, we can just move on if not, but... I'm a big believer in saying Merry Christmas. It's a national holiday, after all. Why would I say anything other than Happy Independence Day, Happy Thanksgiving Day, King Day, or Christmas, right? I'm a big believer in that. Something, you know, has changed over a long period of time, but really with much more ubiquity over the last three or four years, Happy Holidays being, you know, something we've been wrestling with for a long time, but really over the last three, four years, I've noticed Happy Holidays becoming much more prevalent. So what I, you know, I, I will say Merry Christmas, but what do you do in the case, Pete, where someone beats you to it with Happy Holidays? Do you then say Happy Holidays to them or do you say Merry Christmas? But if you say Merry Christmas to them after they say Happy Holidays, is it feeling like you're being rude or Bigfooting them or something? It's just, it, it's, well, anyway, here's, do you have a thought on that? Yeah. No, I do hear – well, and it's just from personal experience because yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm certainly having the same experience. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, cool. yeah, I'm making, making sense. Yeah. You are. Okay. But if somebody comes to me first and says, happy holidays, I'll say happy holidays and Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas. And generally what I'll find yeah. is they will return yeah. by saying Merry Christmas yeah. is almost as if yeah. I've made it okay to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And I've, that has happened at least a half a dozen times in this last week. All right, I'm going to do what you said then, because I was unsure how to handle it. Because you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to voice something you don't really want right. to be a participant in. Uh, live not by lies. We'll come back to that in a moment, right? And yeah. you, you don't want to make someone feel badly either. And uh, yeah. and I like the way you do it. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. That that's that's yeah. pretty good. And I that have provides to them the ability yeah. to either reciprocate if they want or. Not. Not, um, but but what I have seen just personally here is that it's almost as if for some that's giving them permission to say that. And I, it sounds terrible to put it in those. Terms. No, but it's true. Uh, I've had callers yeah. tell me, and I remember this being true. And a few years ago, someone told me this when 
when I wished them a Merry Christmas at a restaurant. I've had a couple callers, few callers tell me a lot of employees will explain they're told to say Happy Holidays unless someone says Merry Christmas to you first. Yeah. And that we... Yeah, you know, it is interesting, right? I mean, December 25th is a particular day. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we don't have this issue with any other day. Nope. Right. Um, They're trying to change Thanksgiving a little. It hasn't yeah. taken yet. Yeah. 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 It's true. And and the and the only other thing I wanted to say is, it's oddly it has an odd feeling. I mean, we we've known about the hot, happy holiday thing. I don't know have, how long we've we been dealing with it. Twenty years, maybe twenty five, thirty years, something. Yeah. Like. It's been around, but you've noticed it's much more prevalent now. It almost it's had the effect, Pete, of almost making it feel like saying Merry Christmas is a subversive act. Yeah. Like it's going against some cultural norm or grain to say Merry right. Christmas. And that's, and that, again, Isn't that weird? That, that, yeah, and it perfectly describes this exchange that I've just described here where if I say Happy Holidays and Merry Christmas and then somebody says, oh, well, Merry Christmas, that yeah. it's almost as if permission is being given. Yeah. And in that, it's it's essentially proving the point that you're making. And I think in many places, certainly here in Southern California, which is a fairly secularized environment, um, you know, I I think what you're describing is right. Pete, I know we didn't, uh, (laughs) we never really prep, but I didn't know that, uh, well, I mean, we prep, we just don't collude. That's what I mean. (laughs) Clearly we prep. (laughs) I think my boss might be listening. Sure, we prep. We just don't, we, we, we don't pre-interview. Um, so we probably, you probably weren't thinking about that, but I did want to do two things with you, um, and anything else on your mind, obviously, and of course, First, I wanted an update. If you can, last time we talked, you were about to give your uh, a talk to the Reagan uh, to the Reagan Library Foundation, if I'm not mistaken, the Reagan Ranch Foundation. I wanted to see how That's that right. goes, and if if you had any takeaways from that, you wanted to share that you'd been thinking on. Yeah, no, I appreciate you uh, remembering that. Yeah, it was exactly two weeks ago. Uh, my wife and I and our daughter were heading up to Santa Barbara to the Reagan Ranch Center, which for Listeners who may not know, uh, Young America's Freedom Foundation not only runs the Reagan Ranch, which is um, uh, north of Santa Barbara, in a obviously it's a large ranch, um, but they also have a uh, meeting and conference center in downtown Santa Barbara, which is where this talk was given to a group of about 90 uh, high schoolers, and it was hosted by... YAF, Young America's Freedom uh, Foundation, as well as FEE, the Foundation for Economic uh, Education, on the topic. It was a two-day conference on escaping communism, and so I was given the opportunity to give the keynote on Friday night, and then on Saturday there were a number of immigrants from formerly communist countries uh, that were describing their experiences of growing up under communism. So. The topic of my talk was thinking historically in difficult times, and it was, as I said in the first couple sentences, it wasn't so much a keynote as it was meant to be a preparation for the next day, Mm -hmm. uh, in that it would be easy to hear these stories uh, and distance yourself from the reality of these experiences, as well as understanding uh, the reality of communism as an actual 
way of organizing society. Um, but through a number of examples and um, discussions around how we understand and think about history, it's it's more than the understanding of knowing history so we don't repeat it. It is really understanding history so that you can understand the present and at least begin to analyze whether there are some trend lines that we need to be uh, need to be thinking about and to appreciate the real courage of uh, people uh, who were living and grew up in very different very different environments than these high school students did. Boy, that is so important. I'm really moved by what you're telling me was taking place. I have a few friends uh, a little bit older uh, than you and I are who lived under communist regimes in what used to be called Eastern Europe who live here now, and I've been doing everything I can to get them to come on the show and talk about mm. their experiences, and, and they will uh, when they're ready and, and feel up to it. It's, for some mm-hmm. reason, there's, there's a little hesitation, but we'll get it. I, I just think it's so critically important. You know, the Jewish community writ large did a pretty good job with Holocaust museums and I don't know if you had any of this growing up, but I remember growing up, and maybe it was in particular in my community, but I remember the Jewish community did a pretty good job of having survivors come into classrooms and talk mm-hmm. about what happened mm-hmm. in Nazi Germany or Poland, uh, particularly, or other countries that the Nazis had taken over. Uh, the um, the anti-communist uh, side of things, for that matter, the anti-terrorist side of things, I always thought there should be more museums. I thought there should be museums on terrorism. I thought there should be... Uh, museums on communism. We do have the Victims uh, uh, of Communism Memorial in D.C. and that outfit, but it's not as anywhere near uh, popular or or regnant as as the Holocaust Studies programs were in those days. I I don't think much of them these days, but once in a while, I mean, once upon a time, they got it really right, I think. It's, It's kind of an odd and sad thing that we don't have that because a whole generation or two now, maybe, are fully unfamiliar with what communism really did do and really didn't mean. Could I get a thought on that from you when we come back on the other side of the Absolutely, because there's some incredible data. I good. know that you know some of it yeah. about... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, oh, I think I know where you're yeah. going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, good, good, good. I'm Seth Leibson. He is Pete Peterson, the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. If you uh, are thinking about a career in public policy, a graduate degree in it, there's only one place to go. It's the Pepperdine School. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Dion DiMucci is one great voice. Pete Peterson, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, is another. Thanks for being with us, Pete. Um, you know what? I can say legitimately I have interviewed both you and Dion DiMucci. I can say that legitimately. Wow. Yeah. I'd love to really be in yours well. more. No, no, no. You you circulate with uh, much more of uh, my heroes than I do yours, I'm sure. I have no doubt. Uh, you were making the point. We were getting into it right before, uh, right before the break. This 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 issue um, that we were uh, that we were talking about and and the experiences you had and wanted to weigh in on with regard to. We did a pretty good job for a while on teaching the evils of Nazism. Uh, it bore a phrase, actually, never again, which, by the way, I happen to think is one of the great lies. I don't think it, we, we ever meant it. 
uh, because we've watched, you know, slaughters and genocides take place again and again and again since then. But at least the phraseology as a teaching point was there. We just weren't as good at that with teaching communism. And you wanted to weigh in a little more on that, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I mentioned a couple data points to really get a, yeah. a sense of what's happening. And I think if you're of a Gen X generation and older, uh, we have a very different view of communism having at least experienced uh, living in the Cold War yeah. than what the generations who are coming along behind us are. Mm -hmm. And I quoted a couple of these data points in the presentation, uh, one from Gallup uh, from 2018, over half, 51% of 18 to 29-year-olds view socialism positively. Right. Uh, 2020, and this was a survey done by a really good group. You mentioned the uh, Holocaust Museum yeah, and yeah. their importance. Yeah. They, uh, Victims of Communism, based in D.C., yeah. is uh, on the mission to create a Victims of Communism Museum yeah. in Washington. Uh, they did a survey to find that 74% of uh, 18 to 29-year-olds do not see Marxism as a totalitarian state. Right. And then finally, in this Vice magazine, which is kind of one of these Gen Z, uh, you know, teen... Slightly teen, left, at least, right? It is. Yeah. You no, know, definitely yeah. in that. Yeah. Um, but speaking to that audience, yeah. 57% of those surveyed see socialism as a solution to, quote, combat violence against marginalized people. Wow. And so this is... Um, this awareness or understanding of socialism, which is fundamentally different from its A, its reality, mm -hmm. um, the B from uh, those of us in older generations um, who saw really this as a global conflict and, and a future of civilization type conflict. Um, but here we are, uh, 40 years after the or 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and a majority of uh, teens and 20-somethings uh, view socialism as as positive. So, uh, very right to say that. Uh, and again, this is the great work that organizations like YAF and yeah. uh, this Foundation for Economic Education, what they're about is making sure that they get a chance to tell the true stories and to do it through people who lived under communism um, uh, certainly does uh, present a, a true picture of, uh, of communism and socialism. It must be odd for a lot of people in their 60s or older to hear these kinds of things. I was some, A friend of mine told me this story the other day. I don't think people remember how unified this country was against communism not so long ago. Even the yeah. Democratic Party had some of the most strident anti-communists around. George Meany, of course. Yeah. Um, I remind people Robert Kennedy worked for Joe McCarthy. He was legal counsel to Joe McCarthy. Uh, people forget yeah. that. John Kennedy, yeah. certainly he may not have met, he may not have executed on it, but he certainly spoke as anti-communist as, as anyone. Uh, how how prevalent this notion was, a friend of mine was telling me she was a little girl. You know how little girls can be. She went to an aunt of hers once, and they were saying, um, would you be upset if I were to marry so-and-so or so-and-so? 
no, I wouldn't be upset. Could I marry um, a, a Jewish boy? Could I marry a, 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 a Protestant boy? Yes, of course. Could I marry a black boy or a Hispanic boy? Yes, of course. The only person you can't marry, the aunt said, was a communist. This was prevalent. This was almost everywhere, right? Yeah. 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 And, yeah. And, and today um, it would be seen as shocking. It would just be seen as totally shocking, somewhat akin to a caller I had earlier, how fast a culture can change. Some, uh, I don't know if you went to public schools growing up. I, I, I went for a couple of years. I did. Okay. And was your experience mine? I think we're roughly the same age, Pete. Was your yep. experience mine that every school, no matter what the classroom differentials, differentials were, they had a picture of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln in that classroom, yep. first, second yep, grade, right? right. Yep. And and how fast that has changed. Not only yeah. not only are those pictures gone, this friend was telling me, Lincoln is now taught as the greatest racist as uh, whoever served in the presidency. Now, I mean, not yeah. every school is teaching that, but that some schools can even think to teach that. I mean, you can change well, a culture course, very fast. Yeah, and of course we have the, the instance up uh, here in California, up in the Bay Area, where... Yes. Uh, yes. Washington's uh, name and yes. portrait were yes. being taken out from the school in yes. Lincoln as well. Yes. I mean, yes. U.S. Grant. That's too. right. I mean, it's again, it's just Th- things can change very fast here as a culture if we're not careful, and that's why I want to maybe may, maybe my charity for the every year I try and pick a charity. Maybe the victims of anti com uh, the victims of communism will be my charity for the year. It, it seems yeah, like well, I definitely encourage it. You know, my friend Elizabeth Spalding, who is at used to be at Claremont McKenna, is um, based in D.C. and is now heading that up. Ed Fulner, my friend at the Heritage Foundation, is is on the, is chairman of the board. Oh, there. great! Lee Edwards uh, still involved. Elizabeth's yeah, daddy, I hope. Yep, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep just a great organization but you're so right to um i want these stories i want there are survivors they are among us i want their stories just just quickly a story that i heard i'd never heard before and so this was somebody who grew up in lithuania yeah and noted uh to the nodding heads of several of the other panelists um that growing up in lithuania everything uh that you had uh, that you might own in your home, and this, and he used the example of a teacup. Mm-hmm. Even a teacup had the price tag on the bottom of it that was uh, inked in in such a way that you could not remove it. So okay. even when you brought it home, it was still there. And the reason that that happened was there was such a virulent distaste for what could be called entrepreneurialism. Uh-huh. That if you decided to sell that teacup for any price over and above the price that's on the bottom, uh-huh. you could be subject to yeah, persecution. I did not know. I had no idea. See these stories, these kinds yeah. of. All right, I have a lot more I want to do with you. You have a little more time for me? Sure do. I appreciate it. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, he does some great stuff. I want to ask him about an article he. Um, He posted from Governing Magazine, What Mayors Worry About and Ought to Worry About. You can follow him on Twitter, at Pete4CA. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete uh, Peterson from the Pepperdine School of Public Policy is our guest. 
Pete, you posted on Twitter an article, I'm glad you did, from Governing Magazine. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and the article, well, I'll just quote it. Uh, they surveyed the mayors of major cities. Uh, I think they were 126 cities they selected. And more than half the mayors, a majority of the mayors uh, were asked, well, they were all asked what their top concern was. More than a, over a major, a majority said, <laughs> a majority yep. said mental health challenges and trauma resulting from the pandemic were their top concern. Let me just give a quote. That's not a misplaced worry, Governing Magazine then editorializes. Public health data suggests growing rates of anxiety and depression during the pandemic, most notably among children. Meanwhile, suicides and fatal drug overdoses are soaring. I'd love your comment on that, um, but I'll give you mine, and you can feel free to argue disregarded or whatever. But, yeah. but, you know, a lot of us were saying this in April of a year ago. Yeah. And this was preventable, and that's what makes me angry. Anyway. Yeah. Well, first off, the, the piece is written by a friend of mine, Michael Hendricks, who uh, directs urban policy at the Manhattan Institute. Oh, great. And, uh, so that's how it got onto my radar good, screen. Good, good, good. Uh, and you're absolutely right that the survey, I think, is important uh, because it shows what mayors are thinking about mm -hmm. uh, in the top 126 uh, cities in the country. Mm -hmm. And as you say, the issues that they are most concerned about um, are the ones that we have discussed, these uh, negative consequences of COVID lockdowns and broader mm -hmm. COVID response. Mm -hmm. I would also throw in there in particular, um, and this is interesting to hear the mayors say this, is their increasing concern about learning loss mm -hmm. and the state of their That's their uh, second issue, right? System. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And now we know that this can vary from city to city, but the this, the organization of most municipalities is that the school district is run separately from the mayor. Mm -hmm. um, there are some municipalities where the mayor has more sway over local education policy. But the fact that they are citing um, the condition of uh, their kids in, the, in their cities, and in particular uh, the lockdown of the schools, um, shows how significant um, this issue is. And as you and I have discussed many times, uh, we still don't know and probably will not know for a couple years uh, the full impact of these lockdowns beyond what they may have done around COVID, um, but to learning loss, uh, mental and emotional well-being, and, um, and again, many of the other uh, issues related to uh, keeping kids out of school. I'm glad they're publishing it. I'm glad that it's getting attention. I'm glad that it's getting credibility. It bothers me so much that this was preventable. There was, um, there's no reason you would know this name. The media put a censorship on her. There was a, 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 a is a person named Eleanor McCants Katz. She was the assistant secretary for mental health at the Department of Health and Human Services under mm. Trump. She had a Ph.D. in epidemiology and an M.D. as a psychiatrist, someone who knew a few things, wouldn't you say? Mm. And mm. she was the first secretary for mental health, actually. That, that position didn't exist. She was given speeches on this in April and May of 2020 and totally blacked out, totally not – no one was interested. I had her on the show. She couldn't say yes fast enough. Uh, YouTube blocked it. By the way, when I aired it, when I put, you know, mm -hmm. we put some of our stuff on YouTube, they took it down. She wow. was warning about all this stuff. 
uh, only a week ago, the the Surgeon General, whose name I'm blanking, I, I apologize, but the Surgeon General now was giving a speech Adams. on this effect. What? Uh, well, the, the current uh, Surgeon General was giving a speech on this effect, on mental health and children and anxiety mm-hmm. and depression, and it was everywhere. And it was everywhere. This is real politics with this pandemic. You know, that particular issue, and I I, I have to say this is one of the things I think that is disappointing and shows the political influence of uh, these these types of issues in the current administration. Vivek Murthy is the current Surgeon General. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And he, prior to coming into the administration, and he was Surgeon General under Obama as well, so this is his second time in the office, but he had become really... Uh, the one raising the clarion call around the the, the health issues related to loneliness, which again, uh-huh. is something you and I have discussed uh-huh. here, has written a book on it, uh, spoke for years, had his own uh, association that was working on these issues and, and researching the impact. Then we come to COVID and the lockdown and the exacerbation of all these um, social distancing and lockdowns and keeping people away from each other and, um, you know, keeping people out of school. And he's been relatively silent uh-huh. on the impact of the COVID lockdown uh-huh. on an issue that he knows so well. Oh, my goodness um, gracious. So really the, disappointing. I didn't that, realize that. So oh, yeah. This is so interesting. Uh, what's your schedule? Do you have time for one more? Or do you got to run? Nope, one more segment. Perfect. I want to do some Live Not By Lies stuff with you. Can I? Okay. Be yeah. right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Pete Peterson, uh, I have so many thanks for you for so many things, uh, but one of them is introducing me and reintroducing me to an essay uh, circa 1974 from Alexander Solzhenitsyn titled Live Not by Lies. And I can't tell you how enwealthened my life has been by going back to it per your uh, suggestion. So I want to thank you for it. I want to thank you. You held a conference on this, uh, on a book Rod Dreher bo- uh, wrote with that title based mm-hmm. on what Solzhenitsyn was writing about. I was discussing it earlier with the audience on a lot of fronts, lies we we now just live with and that we do as a society live with. As a lot of it does happen to be in the in the in the COVID arena, but not by any means all of it, especially having to do with vaccines and not spreading and that sort of stuff. We kind of acquiesce in them. And I I'll tell you the the line I I have been seized on for to, for t- today was where in in that essay, he says violence has nothing to cover itself with but lies and lies can only persist through violence. And it is not every day and not on every shoulder that violence brings down its heavy hand. It demands of us only a submission to lies, a daily participation in deceit. And this suffices as our fealty or loyalty. I was thinking about that in the context of what your um, uh, your your fellow speakers at the Reagan conference were talking about those who had fled communism or who had lived through communism and survived it. Um, they know what it means to live by lies. People, yeah. t- people, people know what it what, knew what it was, and and I worry about a generation now that just has no concept of any of this. We spoke about this earlier today. But they really are swallowing this hook, line, and sinker, and it's very hard to to get them to understand. It's very hard to teach what we know when the entire effort of the culture is forced against us. 
Yeah, that's right. Although, um, in and I quoted that exact same line. Oh, by the okay. Way. Uh, <laughs> All right. Now we know why we like each other. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. But um, a couple things on that. One is that students, high school and college students, ask any of them about uh, whether they feel they they uh, live or study in what might be called an eggshell environment. Uh-huh. Every single one knows that's true. Okay. And so they might not exactly be able to um, speak to what the lies are or compared to what, um, but they know that on a regular basis they have a sense as to whether they can speak freely on any variety of topics. I wasn't sure I was going to do this at the talk with the high school students because it's something I only do with college students, but I just decided to call an audible and and begin the talk um, up at YAF with the, with the two questions I always ask on college campuses. How many of you have had have been uh, ridiculed or demeaned in some way by your teacher because you took a conservative perspective in a classroom discussion? Uh-huh. And about half of these kids raised their hand. Is that more than you get from college students? It's a little less. Interesting. Um, okay. It's usually about three-quarters of the hands go up uh, uh-huh. when I speak to college audiences. Uh-huh. And then the second question, how many of you uh, believe you've been downgraded on a test or written assignment because you took a conservative perspective on a particular uh, question? And about a third of the hands yeah. went up, which, again, is a little bit less. A little bit. Than, mm-hmm. But you speak to them about... Um, do you feel like you've got to shape or shift your answers or classroom discussions in a way to either avoid uh, the critical uh, response from your teacher or professor? And a significant percentage of, of today's high school and college students, if you're conservative or a person of faith, uh, realize that that's the case. And in, in that sense, there's a little bit of living by I life. was going to say it. Yeah, right? right? That's how it starts. Right. You condition it. Yes. Yeah. Now, there's a great line towards the end of the letter, of the of Sosanisan's letter that I also quoted from, in which he allows, and I'll just quote this one passage, he goes, for the young who seek to live by truth, this will at first severely complicate life for their tests and quizzes, too, mm. are stuffed mm. with lies. Mm. Mm-hmm. So choices will have to be made. So there's a there's a call to prudence there, mm-hmm. right? But yep. also a call to courage. Yep. Yep. And and that really, to me, I you know you know I've talked about this before. I really believe the watchword for this era uh, is courage. Yeah. Right. And uh, and to do it, to speak the truth in love, not to simply get out there and throw it back into somebody's face. Right. But to understand if you feel you feel as if you have to change your answer in order to get a better grade simply for political or ideological reasons, choices will have to be made. <laughs> you know? It's interesting how strong that sentiment is. You know, you and I have discussed the closing of the American mind, Alan Bloom's right. book, 1987-88, and the first chapter where he says, if there's one thing every college student knows, it's that truth is relative. And 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 that's that's a beginning of living by lies. But now we have gotten to a point 
where I would guess almost everyone in your audiences, college or high school, would know the expression, my truth. So we went from a relativism of truth to something called my truth, which is really just a sentiment of feeling, I think, more than anything else. But in in and of itself, it does say what you said. In and of itself, right, it it automatically does say, as opposed to the truth. It it does imply that, yes. Well, and it's worth taking that one step further to say that my truth is usually of a particular perspective. Yes, Right. So if my truth is that I disagree with school, uh, you know, elementary school lockdowns, um, that's that's going to be met in certain circles with derision. And uh, so even that that the use of that phrase uh, is is freighted with a certain degree of ideology. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I, that's right. And. and 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 maybe these things come and go. Maybe we go through phases, but it does show you how taken for granted so many of us were in nineteen with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, it really does, and it does show you totally if you go back that. and look coterminously with Alan Bloom's book coming out just a couple years before. Yep. How much of a heavy lift we were about to have to experience without even knowing yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Pete Peterson, you're the best. Thank you for everything you are and do. Thanks so much, Seth. Great to be with you as always. You betcha. Merry Christmas, Pete. Merry Christmas. Thank you. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. I know some of you didn't make it on the show today. We're on hold. Call back whenever you want and just say you were on hold before and weren't able to get on. We'll put you right on. I apologize. This is our shortest segment. I like to give a little statement at the end of every show. A friend of mine was talking about a client of hers that kind of did a turn on, uh, an odd turn on her. She's still working with them and, you know, biting her tongue and being a good uh, contractor with them. And we were talking, and I and I ended up sending her this thing that uh, I thought would help. And as I did it, I thought, you know, I bet a lot of people could use this. And I'll close the show with it. Um, it was written by Kent Keith originally, just a writer. But it was found on Mother Teresa's wall in Calcutta after she passed away. She didn't write it. He did. But it was on her wall. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be serene and happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Folks, I wish you a uh, a very very blessed weekend, uh, a very happy, Happy, healthy, and safe weekend. Thank you for a great week here. God, we covered a lot. And uh, I shouldn't use that word except to say God bless. And also I'll add class dismissed. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.